But I want to go to the word of the Lord this evening for a few minutes. Powerful, powerful word. The Holy Spirit spoke to me, and I want to bring it into your spirit this evening. Tonight, the message is defining the battle. We're in the great book of Jude. It's a little bitty book, but it's so packed with power, with spiritual insight. And so I want to read tonight Jude, verse 3 and 4. Here's how it reads. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation. Now, the common salvation, you know, I I want you to understand what that means. That means something we all share. It doesn't mean cheap, but it means something we all share. It's the common salvation. There's not two kinds of salvation. There's only one. And everyone who's believed upon the name of the Lord and called upon His name is saved. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And if you're saved... You have what everyone else had. Now think about this. You have what Paul had. You have what John had and Peter had. We have, we have been all made to drink of the same spirit. We've been baptized into the same spirit, drink of the same spirit of Jesus Christ our Lord. So he's talking, he said, I wanted to write about this. Jude was, you know, the half-brother of our Lord, was so excited about this salvation. And we should be excited. He said, I want to write a treatise to you. Tried to do that, but he said, here's what he said, I felt it necessary. That's very powerful. I felt it necessary to write to you, appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith. He said, I've got to take, I had to take a different direction. How many of you, try, how many of you in your life could, were trying to go one direction, trying to do one thing, and the Holy Spirit was, you, you, you just had static in your spirit, you couldn't go that way, and all of a sudden you felt the green light to go this other way. And that's what's happening with Jude. Jesus said, I wanted to do this, but I said, you know, being sensitive to the Spirit of God, I did this. He said, I want to write about this message, but all of a sudden, a burden of the Lord, the burden of the Word of the Lord came upon me, and I felt this call, this appeal, this to, to call the people of God to earnestly contend, notice, for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain, certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly persons, notice that, who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness, or other translations, lasciviousness. Notice what they do. And they deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Wow. Two little scriptures that we're going to minister out of. And we ask the Holy Spirit to help us tonight. You know, the book of Jude is a book for our times. It's a book for last day believers. And we are 2,000 years removed from the very words of the Apostle Peter as he stood up on the day of Pentecost 2,000 years ago. The first sermon as the church was born on the day of Pentecost. Or rather anointed on the day of Pentecost. Filled on the day of Pentecost. And he said, in the last days, God will pour out His Spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. We're 2,000 years away from the beginning of the last times of the last days. I think we're in the last days of the last days. And this little book of Jude is a small book. A book for our times. Condensed powerful, full of insights. We really don't know who Jude's audience is. 
We don't even know the exact time that Jude was written. Uh, we, we, we presume that Jude was written about the same time frame of, of, of Second Peter because they're absolutely so similar. They probably shared thoughts with each other, possibly. But what Jude is, Jude, Jude, the book of Jude, the 25 verses, Jude is a message and a warning of how to navigate dangerous spiritual seasons. How to navigate dangerous spiritual times. And I think we're in those times. I think we're in dangerous spiritual times. I think there's a lot of Christians in danger. I think there's a lot of churches in danger. I think we're vulnerable to a lot of things right now. So Jude, the book of Jude, that is, is very applicable to us. Last week, I spoke about five spiritual attitudes that we need to develop in these last times if we're going to stay spiritually healthy. But tonight, I want to teach for these few moments together. And I want to teach about defining the battle. Jude, in these two little verses here, verses 3 and 4, Jude helps us to define the battle. He said, I'm calling you to contend. He said, I'm calling you to to fight. I'm calling you to the battle. Well, what's the battle about? We're going to learn about that this evening. The first thing I want want to share with you this evening is, first of all, we see that it's the church in battle. It's the church in battle. Notice the first word in verse 3. He uses the word, beloved. Beloved, that's a, that's a Christian word. That's a church word. That's, that's a spiritual word. That's, that defines who he's talking to. Beloved, he's writing to the church. The, church, the beloved word designates who he's writing to. The word beloved really means this. Those united with God and one another in the bonds of holy love. Those who are united with God and with one another... In the bonds of holy love. That's the beloved. Who is that? That's the church. So what we see in this battle is the church is in the battle. So what kind of battle is it? What is the church's battle? A few things here. Number one, it's personal, but it's also corporate. Think about it. This this battle is to you as an individual child of God. It's You've been called in the battle personally, but you're called together into the corporate battle. And and you got to take your place. You and I have to take our place in the battle. We don't, be, we don't need to be ashamed as we fight in this battle. In Paul said to Timothy in, you know this verse, the second verse is not one that we quote. We quote verse 6 and 7 of 2 Timothy 1, 6 and 7, but we don't normally quote 8. I want to quote 7 and 8 or read 7 and 8. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, that's fear. But he's given us power and he's given us love and discipline, self-discipline or disciplined mind, a sound mind. And he's talking about the battle, talking about the spirit that we carry in battle, the, the, the produce of the Holy Spirit when we're filled, power, love, and a sound mind. Then he says this, verse 8, notice, therefore do not be ashamed. Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner. But notice, but join me in the battle, join me in the suffering. Join me. Join me, Paul says. Personal but corporate. Paul said, join me in this gospel battle. Join me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Join me in the battle. Think about it. It's personal. It's corporate. Got to take your place. Got to take your place in the battle. But it's also a painful battle. Notice he used the word Contend for the faith. That word contend is the word we get agonized from. And in some places, it's agonizing to the point 
of exhaustion. So here's the question. Is that how we serve the Lord? The question is this. Is there suffering or sacrifice in our Christian life? Think about that. Paul said, again, join me in the suffering. You very rarely hear that gospel presentation very often, do you? Our American gospel that's not the real gospel, it's all about getting more stuff. It's all about getting more ease. It's all about a, an easier life or a more luxurious life or more, or, you know, more, more uh, uh, comfortable life. But Paul said, join me in the suffering. When have you heard a preacher say that lately? Very few, I'm sure. Jesus calls us to take up a cross. You say, take up a cross? The cross has to do with suffering. Jesus said, I'm calling the church to the battle. I'm calling the church to the battlefield. I remind you of the very words of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says this in John, or Mark 8. He says, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? And what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Look at this. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father and of his holy angels. Do you see it there? Think about this battle. The church, beloved, it's the church in the battle. It's a personal battle. At times and season, it's a painful battle. Pick up the book, Fox's Book of Martyrs, and meditate on those stories of the ancient saints and how they suffered painfully for the gospel. Some of them were crucified. Some of them were burned at the stake. Some of them were fed to lions. Some of them lost everything. In the book of Hebrews, he says, all of your goods were confiscated, but you lost it with joy. Why? Because they heard Paul's call to the beloved, or Jude's call. Beloved, it's the church's call to the battle. So it's a, it's a painful battle at times, but it's also a powerful battle. What do I mean by that? I mean this, we're defining the battle, by the way. Remember that. This is a, a battle where there are satanic powers that are arrayed against the church. This is not a natural battle, though there are natural manifestations, but in truth, it's a spiritual battle. Paul said, take the whole armor of God and put it on because you need to overcome the schemes of the enemy. He said, for your battle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against principalities and powers and the rulers of the darkness of this age, spiritual wickedness in the high places. There are invisible forces that we cannot see with our natural eye, that are influencing the politics and, and, and the power systems and structures that are in our world today. The false religions, the economic system. Uh, John the Reveler talked about uh, uh, Babylon, commercial Babylon that would fall. God says, get out of it. But think about this. This battle is personal, but it's corporate. This battle at times is painful. This battle is powerful. There are powerful forces that are arrayed that want to stop the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now think about this. There are false teachers, and Jude deals with this, false teachers that are 
inspired by demon spirits that at times try to infiltrate the church of Jesus Christ. How do I know that? Well, because I have the Bible. Peter, I'm sorry, Tim, uh, t- uh, Timothy. Paul writes to Timothy. Notice what he said here. Notice this prophetic word that Paul brings to us from the Holy Spirit. He said in 1 Timothy 4.1, the Spirit speaks explicitly. He speaks explicitly. He speaks clearly about what will happen in the last days. He says that in the latter times, some will fall from, away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Demons that promote false doctrine through false teachers. And they, they take captive They take captive, gullible people. They take captive people that have not immersed themselves and clung to the pure doctrines of the Word of God in Jesus Christ. And they're susceptible to false teachers. They're susceptible to New Age movements and all kinds of things. Why? Because they they haven't immersed themselves in the truth of the Word of God. Now notice, we'll read on here. It says in verse 2, this is just 1 Timothy 4, 2. By means of their, the hypocrisy of liars, they seared their own conscience with, with a branding iron. Men who forbid marriage and, you know, all of these things. So no, notice that. Notice what he says there. He says there, there are going to be messages that go out that, that people want to have their ears tickled. And, and they're going to be popular messages, relevant so-called messages, self-help messages. They're, going to be, they're not going to offend any unoffensive messages, but they will not be life-changing messages. They will not be gospel-declaring, life-changing, converting messages. They're not going to be messages that can take a sinner and unite him and reconcile him to God. Only the gospel can do that, not the message of the false teachers. And we're in this battle, this battle has to do with powers, but we have the great power of the Holy Spirit. And we can win every battle if we'll depend on the power of the Holy Spirit. Think about this battle. The church in the battle, it's a personal battle. It's a corporate battle. It's a painful battle. It's a, it's a battle that it has to do with powers and the works of the enemy, but also the great power of the Holy Spirit. But I want to declare to this, it's also a predictable battle. I can predict the battle. I can prophesy the battle as I open my mouth and declare the Word of God because we have prophecies and promises that promise us victory. This is the victory that overcomes the world. This is the victory. This is a, when when we go through trials, he said, I'm going to give you a way of escape every single time you're coming out. So Jude defines the battle. It's the church in the battle. It's the believer in the battle. It's the Christian in the battle. Now I want you to also see this. We have the commandments in this battle. He he mentions contend for the faith. Now notice this. Contend for the faith. What is the faith? Now hear, hear this term in Jude, contending for the faith, once and all delivered to the saints and handed down to the saints. What is the faith? Here, the faith is not a principle, but it's the precepts of God. Now notice this. The faith is the body of truth. It's the doctrines taught in the Scripture. And particularly here, we're talking about the doctrine of salvation and how it was being 
misrepresented in Jude's day. So what do we think about when we think about the faith? Let me define it this way, because we're defining the battle tonight. We're talking about the church in the battle. Now we're talking about the commandments that he's talking about in the battle. The faith, the doctrines and the teachings of the Word of God. What I want you to see is this, that this book is a given book. This book is a given book. This book is a supernaturally given book. So who was it given through? And it was given through chosen men. Men that were selected by the Holy Spirit. And these men, the scripture says in 2 Peter, verse 1. I want you to listen to this in verse 19, chapter 1, verse 19. She says, so we have a more a, a prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention to a lamp shining in a dark place. I mean, that's what the Word of God is. It's the Word of God shining in a dark place. There is no light in this world. The only light are the Christians and the, the, the truth they proclaim. There's no light here in this world except the light shining in a dark place. And he says, until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. Notice this. But know that, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture, no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. In other words, man did not come up with this. this these words, these spiritual words are not the, the words of intelligent religious men that just came up with these words. Notice, for no prophecy was ever made by the act of a human will. But men, notice, men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. This is a Holy Spirit given book. This is a supernatural book. God gave this book through chosen men. Men like Peter. Men like Paul. Men like Matthew. Men like John Mark. Men like Luke. Men like John the Revelator. John the Apostle. These are men that God chose, and, and the Spirit of God moved them to write these words. How was it given? I've already re- referenced it, but in 2 Timothy 3.16, a powerful verse. He said this, all Scripture is inspired by God. That literally means God breathed. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. This is a God-inspired book. This is a Holy Spirit-given book. God moved upon men. God inspired men exactly what they needed to write. Not as robots, but He inspired them to write. And He guided them so as to bring forth the Scripture to us. Who was who it given through? Chosen men. How was it given? Inspired by the Holy Spirit supernaturally. When was it given? This is important. When was it given? The Word of God was given in the past, and it is a completed book. No other scriptures will ever be written, ever. No other scriptures. There is no other scriptures. Peter said this. He has given us everything, everything that pertains to life and God. We have everything in these great canon of the Word of God, these 66 books, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament, the canon is closed, no other scripture. This is a God-breathed, God-given book. It's the greatest treasure, most valuable thing we have. It's a given book. It's also a great book. We need to discover it. Anytime it was discovered, it changed lives. Anytime it was read and, 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 and preached from pulpits, it brought great revivals. 
in the Old Testament when young Josiah had them repair the temple that had been dilapidated. And, and, and the, the priests came and they said, here's what it says, they found, they found the book of the Lord, in the, 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 the book of the law in the house of the Lord. They found the word of God there. And then the priest read it before young Josiah. And when he read it, it so moved him that he, he tore his garment. And he says, we have not been obeying this word. And they began to obey the word of God. Tremendous revival took place. Anytime this book is taken up, this great book of the word of God, I want to tell you revival can happen. Anyone can have revival if they want it, if they'll have it by the word of God. This is a glorious book, a great book. This is a given book. Think about this. Think about the term glory. Glory. This book points to glory. This book points beyond this sinful world, beyond this dark world, beyond this God-hating world. It points us beyond this world into the very glories of God. The Bible says, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, he says, we exult in the glory, in the hope of the glory of God, the hope of our future eternity. In Romans 8, 18, it says, this present, this present time is not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. Paul talked about in 2 Corinthians 4, 17, the light afflictions, which cannot be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. This is a glory book right here. This is a glory book. It points us beyond this sinful world, to the glory of God. And more than anything, it's a glory book because it glorifies and exalts our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's a glory book. Let's talk about Jesus for a few minutes here. Every book of the Bible points to Jesus. Jesus is the great glorious Prince of life. And this book points to Him. It points to Jesus Christ, our Lord. I, I read this today, and I want to read it to you. Jesus in every book of the Bible. I told you it's a glory book. It points to our glorious King. This glory book, Jesus, every book in the Bible. You've heard this maybe. But in Genesis, Jesus Christ is the seed of the woman. In Exodus, he's the Passover lamb. In Leviticus, he's the high priest. In Numbers, he's the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. In Deuteronomy, he's the prophet like Moses. In Joshua, he's the captain of our salvation. In Judges, he's the judge and the lawgiver. In Ruth, he's our kinsman redeemer. In First and Second Samuel, he's our trusted prophet. In Kings and Chronicles, he's our reigning king. In Ezra, he's a rebuilder of broken walls of human life. And in Nehemiah, in Esther, he's our Mordecai. In Job, he's our ever-living redeemer. In Psalms, he's our shepherd. In Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, he's our wisdom. In the Song of Solomon, he's our loving bridegroom. In Isaiah, he's our prince of peace. In Jeremiah, he's our righteous branch. In Lamentation, he's the weeping prophet. In Ezekiel, he's a wonderful four-faced man. In Daniel, he is the fourth man in the fiery furnace. Hallelujah. In Hosea, he is the faithful husband, forever married to the backslider. In Joel, he is the great baptizer in the Holy Spirit. In Amos, he's our burden bearer. In Obadiah, he's mighty to save. In Jonah, he's our great foreign missionary. In Micah, he's a messenger with beautiful feet. In Nahum, he's the avenger of God's elect. In Habakkuk, he's God's evangelist, crying, Revive thy work in the midst of the years. In Zephaniah, he is our Savior. In Haggai, he's the restorer of God's lost heritage. In Zechariah, he's the fountain to open up to the house of David for sin and uncleanness. 
In Malachi, he is the son of righteousness, rising with healing in his wings. In Matthew, he's the king. In Mark, he's the servant. In Luke, he's the son of man. And in John, he's the son of God. In Acts, he's the savior of the world. In Romans, he's the righteousness of God. In Corinthians, he's the rock that followed Israel. In 2 Corinthians, he is the triumphant one giving victory. In Galatians, he's our liberty who sets us free. In Ephesians, he's the head of the church. In Philippians, he's our joy. In Colossians, he's our completeness. In 1 and 2 Thessalonians, he's your hope. In Timothy, he's our faith. In 2 Timothy, he's our stability. In Philemon, he's our benefactor. In Titus, he's our truth. In Hebrews, he's our perfection. In James, he's the power behind our faith. In Peter, he's our example. In 2 Peter, he's our purity. In 1 John, he's our life. In 2 John, he's our pattern. In 3 John, he's our motivation. In Jude, he's the fountain of our faith. And in Revelation, he is our soon coming king. Think about who he is. This book is a glory book. How could you make this book boring? This is the most glorious book there is. Jesus is the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He's the keeper of creation and the creator of all. He's the architect of the universe and the manager at all times. He always was, always is, and always will be. He's unmoved, unchanged, undefeated, and never undone. He is bruised and he brought healing. He was pierced and he eased our pain. He was persecuted and brought our freedom. He was dead and he's alive. He is risen, he brings power. He reigns and brings peace. The world cannot understand him. Armies can't defeat him. Schools can't explain him. Leaders can't ignore him. And Herod couldn't kill him. The Pharisees couldn't confuse him. The people couldn't hold him. Nero couldn't crush him. Hitler couldn't silence him. The New Age can't replace him. And not even Oprah can explain him. He's the light and the love, the longevity, and the Lord. He is goodness. He's kindness. He's gentleness in God. He is holy. He is righteous. He is mighty. He is powerful. He is pure. He is righteous. He is the eternal word. He is the unchanging one. He is the redeemer. He's the savior. He's the guide. He's our peace. He's our joy. He's my comfort. He's my Lord. And he rules his church in Jesus' name. This is a glory book. Somebody ought to just praise him. Come on, say hallelujah. Somebody ought to praise him. Somebody ought to praise him. What a mighty Jesus we serve. What a great God we serve. We're defining the battle tonight. What about the conduct in the battle or the character in the battle? This, this battle is about the grace of God. Do you realize we're battling for the grace of God? We're battling today for the message of the grace of God. I think more has been said about the grace of God in the last six or eight years or so, four or five years or so, than probably in many decades now. But here was the battle. He said, They've turned, they've turned the grace of God into something that God never said it was or said it should, was supposed to do. Now here the grace of God can be defined as the doctrines of salvation in Christ. The grace of God are the doctrines of the teachings of salvation in Jesus Christ. Let me just be very clear. God calls His church to holy living. I'm going to say that again. God calls His church to holy living. Now think about this. Salvation is deliverance from sin, not just forgiveness of sin. Now I want to say that again. I hope that settles in on you. Salvation is not just forgiveness of sins, but it is deliverance from sin. Any blatant, ungodly lifestyle 
is incompatible with Christianity. It's incompatible. There are people today that that I call them the, uh, the oh, no one's perfect group. You know, the oh, oh, well, you know, everybody makes mistake group. That is so shallow. It's so asinine. It's so foolish. We're talking about salvation. We're talking about Jesus, our glorious prince and glorious heaven-sent king who died on the cross for our sins, who defeated death and busted out of the grave on the third day and now is ruling and reigning. And, And the grace of God and the message of God's true grace has been hijacked. We're talking about salvation here. When when God saves someone, He doesn't leave them in sin. Are they perfect? No. Do Christians make mistakes? Of course they do. Do Christians sin? Yes, but I hope they sin less. They're not sinless, but they need to sin less. This salvation is a moral change that takes place. You say, what is the conduct of the Christian? What are the paths of righteousness? It's clear. The Word of God is clear. Listen to Paul's writing, which are the writings of the Holy Spirit. This is Ephesians 5, verse 3, beginning. I'm going to read several verses here, about 12 verses. Paul said this, listen, child of God, but immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper for saints, among saints. For there must be no filthiness or silly talk, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty, notice this, that no immoral person or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Be certain about this, Paul says. No one living in immorality, living in, 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 in sensuality, no one who lives that way will inherit the kingdom of God. And he says, verse 6, For let no one deceive you with empty words. Listen, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. And then he says, Therefore do not be partakers with them. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of life. Uh, light for the fruit of light is consists of goodness and righteousness and truth t- t- trying to learn what is pleasing to the lord do not do not participate in the deeds of darkness but instead expose them for it is disgraceful even to speak of those things which are done of them in secret and all things become visible when they are exposed by the light in other words you are light and when you are there you are a difference maker when you are standing there, listen, you're just your light, just your life, the Holy Spirit in you, is, it, it reproves the presence of God in you. It exposes the light. For everything becomes visible in light. For this reason it said, now he's speaking to the church, Arise, you sleeper. Christians are asleep. Arise from the dead. Some of them are dying. And, and Christ will give you light. Be careful how you walk, not as unwise, but wise, making the most of time because the days are evil. Do you see what he says here? And he mentions they turn in the grace of God, Jude, back to Jude, into lasciviousness or licentiousness. 
licentiousness is sensuality. It's, it's debauchery. It means, it means this. The false teachers, or rather, licentious means unrestrained moral attitudes and behavior. That's what licentious means, or lasciviousness in other translations. Being unrestrained in moral attitudes and behaviors. So, in other words, here, here's what it was. The false teachers said something like this, that someone could live a sensual, ungodly life and maintain a relationship with God, which is false grace. It's a lie. It's against the teachings of Scripture. Can God save us out of those things? Yes, He loves us. Yes, He said to the woman caught in adultery, He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. What is true grace? True grace transforms us. True grace changes us. True grace is amazing. It's glorious. Paul spoke about true grace in Titus 2, verse 11. For for the grace of God, there it is again, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us, notice, to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. So the, so the no one's perfect silly group? No, no, no. He says, we have the power to live righteously, godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glorious, of the glory of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Notice this, verse 14. Who gave himself, who gave himself to redeem us. This is why he died on the cross for us. He didn't die on the cross for us to, to live some kind of silly little, oh, no one's perfect life. He said, I, he died on the cross, shedding his blood. Why? That he may redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify himself a people for his own possessions, possession, zealous for good works. Think about it. The character of this battle is this. The, the grace of God and what the grace of God really is and what the grace of God really does and what it produces in those who embrace the grace of God through faith changes lives. Now think about this. I'm, I'm, I'm a couple more things and we're done. Think about the church in the battle. Think about it. Think about the commandments in the battle, the faith. Think about the conduct in the battle, the grace of God, the life-changing grace of God. But notice in this text, in Jude, it talks about the Christ of the battle. Notice in verse 4, it says that these people, we'll talk about them in a moment, turn the grace of God into licentiousness. Notice, notice how Jesus is mentioned. They deny, they deny the only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what does it mean to deny the Master and the Lord Jesus Christ? Here's what it means. It means that the church or these false teachers, they deny Jesus his proper place in the church. Now, they may speak his name empty in an empty way, but they truly deny his lordship and his proper place in the church. And I thought about this. As I meditate on this today, I thought about the Laodicean church in Revelation 3. I won't go there and read it, but do you realize the, the, the name Laodicea or Laodicean, it means the people ruling. It means the judgment of the people. So in other words, the Laodicean church was a church of the people. It was a church, of, it was a church that we wanted. It's how we wanted to do church. 
It was a church of the people's ruling. It's what we wanted. Not what he wanted. Not what his word declares the church should be. But what we, it's a church of the people, Laodicea, the judgment of the people. So in other words, as you look at the Laodicean church, I won't, re- I won't read it, but it does say that he was standing outside of the church, not in his part. See, Jesus needs to be the central focus of everything we do in the church. He is the Lord. He is the head of the church. And yet you get to Laodicea, which is the church of the people, the church of the people's judgment. It's the church of human rationale. It's the church that we're doing a church the way we want to do church today. And in that kind of church, it's like that little girl that had the dream. Jesus and his worship been abandoned. We're just hanging out, partying in the parking lot while we're pretending to go to church. But Jesus is not there because he's not the center point of everything. He said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Jesus is outside the church. Think about this. Jesus is supposed to have the preeminence in the church, and yet he's outside the church. And the false teachers deny the only master. They don't give him his proper place in the church. So think about this. In that kind of church, Jesus is outside the decision-making of the church. They're not consulting Jesus. They're not on their knees seeking God's will, consulting him. What they're doing is following earthly Human rationale. He's outside the decision-making of that church. He's also outside the worship of that church. Jesus is not in the center of worship in that church. It Worship that does not proclaim Jesus in all of His majesty, in all of His glory, is not worship. No matter what it looks like. Our focus is Jesus. Our song should be full of the cross. Our songs should be full of the miracles. Our songs should talk about the resurrection, should have the name of Jesus in them. We should have the blood of Jesus in them. We should talk about His deity. We should talk about His second coming. We should talk about His high priesthood. Everything should be focusing on Jesus Christ. He is have the preeminence. Think about this. Anything that denies, diminishes, or diverts attention away from Jesus is not from the Holy Spirit, but a demon spirit or a carnal spirit. Because when the Holy Spirit comes, He exalts Christ. Lastly, I will close with this. We have the commandment in the battle. What's the commandment in the battle? I mentioned it. Or the, rather, the condemned in the battle. He says this. Now notice this in this verse. Certain men have crept in unaware. Just notice that. And it says their judgment has already been written out beforehand. The people who do such things, these false teachers who come and turn the grace of God into lasciviousness. They, they take the church and, and, and it's more worldly after their message is preached. Instead of people wanting to repent and get right with God and fear sin and fear God, there's a lightness, there's a frivolity. They don't fear God, they don't reverence God because they turn the grace of God to lasciviousness. It says these false teachers are condemned. Notice they crept in unaware. See, Satan wants to find people in any congregation he can use to destroy the church. What we need to do, first of all, is there needs to be some care in the battle. You say, what do you mean? Because later on, and we'll get to this several weeks, but in in verse 22... It says this, 
and have mercy on some who are doubting. These, those who have mercy, those who have been taken captive by the false teachers. They come under the influence of the false teachers. And they're confused about their doctrines. They're being led astray from Jesus Christ. They're being led astray from the Word of God. They're being led into strange doctrines. And, and Jude says here, so on some of them, no, some of them you need to rebuke. But he said, the, there are some that we need to have mercy on. It says, who are doubting, verse 22. We'll get to that later. But here's what I want to tell you. Those who are under the power of false teachers need our prayers and they need our, our loving correction. You hear that? If somebody's under a false teaching or a false prophet or a false teacher, they need our prayers and they need loving correction. They need to be corrected lovingly by the Word of God. But notice, notice, just focus in here for another moment. Notice here these clandestine men. It says they, they crept in. Satan loves deception. He loves darkness. He loves to do things in a corner. He loves to do things in a clandestine way. He loves to do things in a secret way. These men didn't come in the front door. They came in the side door. They crept in. Satan uses deceived people to deceive. They crept in. And notice they were on the inside. They crept in. Notice they crept, but they, what did they creep to? They crept in. They were in the church. Inside. Corrupting the church. This is the battle. We're defining the battle tonight. But here's the call from the Word of God. Jude said this. I need the believers to enter the battle and to earnestly contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. I, he's calling us to the battle in the name of Jesus. He's calling us to defend the great doctrines of Jesus Christ. The great doctrine that we're saved by the grace of God through faith. We're saved. We're called to live godly, to live holy. We're called to live suffering and sacrificial if need be. I'm call, he calls us to commitment. And what I want to pray for tonight as we define this battle is I want to pray for your commitment to the church and our commitment to Christ to follow Him, to engage the battle, to be what Timothy, he told Timothy, be a good soldier, be a good soldier of the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe, you're, maybe you felt weak. Maybe, maybe you're retreating to the back of the, instead of you on the front lines, you're, you, you're retreating to the back. Maybe you've gotten distracted. Maybe you've got caught up in something that you need to get out of. Some kind of false teaching, some kind of false, weird, strange doctrines. We need to be saying what God's Word says. We need to have sound doctrine. Listen to me. We need to have sound doctrine, not strange doctrines. Well, Paul said, I remind you again, Paul said that there's coming a time they're not going to endure sound doctrine. They're going to want something to tickle their ears. They're going to want something to excite their fleshly emotion. No, Jesus said, take up the cross. We need more discipline in our Christian lives. Stop following our own fleshly pleasures. You know, it takes discipline to listen to a whole sermon. I heard, or read rather, Charles Finney had become sick. You know, this is 1800s. Charles Finney became sick, couldn't, couldn't go to church for a little while. But then he, and I read in this book, but he said he got better. 
Lord helped him. And then he said, I went back and ministered to the church on Sunday. And here's what he said. And I just laughed because I thought, man, he wouldn't fit in our day. He said, here's what he said. He said, I preach my normal hour and a half as I always do. I thought, you preach an hour and a half, people are going to be punching on their phone, playing on their apps. They're gonna be, they've already taken two trips to McDonald's and come back before the altar call. We need more discipline because he's calling us to the battle. And so I want to pray for us. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray for rigorous faith in our church. I pray for strong faith. I pray for daring faith. I pray for rugged faith. I pray for believers to be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Lord, we realize that we have defined the battle. It's a rugged battle. Lord, it's hard to hear. It's hard to preach. But Lord, it's Your Word. And every word is given by You. And we're not ashamed of Your words. We're not ashamed of any of Your words in this adulterous and sinful generation. We're not ashamed of the words that tell us to live godly and holy. No matter what the culture says, your word says that we're to be chased before you and holy. And Father, I pray that you would put fight in us, to fight the good fight of faith, to take up our spiritual weapons and to trust you, to trust you. Keep us, Lord, in your mercy. Keep us in your great love. We love you, Jesus. We praise you. Hallelujah. Just for another moment, just lift your hands and worship him. We worship you, Lord. Jesus, we honor you. Oh, Father, oh, we worship you. In the name of your Son, Jesus, we thank you. We bless you, Lord. We bless you, Lord. We honor your name. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Well, I guess we'll conclude this this evening. Thank you for anyone who joined us tonight. And if you want to share this maybe with someone else, one of our dear saints said that um, that he's been sharing it with, with his daughter and son-in-law, son and daughter-in-law that live over in another part of the Metroplex. And they have been sharing our services and our sermons with a Baptist life group. So they're joining in. If you Baptist folks are with us, we love the Baptists. God bless you. But um, we'll be back together soon. Let me mention this. I, I posted it. I think most of you saw it. Uh, we're, we're not going to be having public worship on Sunday. Just the 25% thing was just too hard to work around logistically. But, uh, but please join us again online. Um, you know, it'll probably be several other weeks before the governor uh, opens it up to a little bigger crowds and things and uh, but let's keep serving the Lord and we're going to be back together soon we're going to have our church going soon you know getting our plans this week and um, just keep praying and uh, let's stay together in spirit so the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all Trinity Life I love you we'll see you soon God bless you